Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Good to see you today. Take your Bible, paper or digital, and turn to John chapter 16, and we'll get there in a few minutes. You know, one of my favorite all-time Christian writers is a woman named Rebecca Pippert, and uh, she tells a story in her book, uh, Hope Has Its Reasons, and this story, in the story, it raises a question that I think is a very important question for the followers of Jesus to be able to answer in these days in which we live. She writes, once I had the opportunity of auditing courses for a year at Harvard, one day one of my professors said to me, Becky, I'm fascinated by the fact that you're such a committed Christian. I'm an atheist myself, but I've always wanted to ask a serious Christian a few questions. Would you mind? Certainly, she said. My first question is this. In the end, isn't life the same whether you believe in Jesus or not? Don't all of us long to make meaning out of life? Don't all of us want to find identity? Don't all of us want to be loved? Isn't the stuff of what makes us human the same whether we believe in God or not? And Becky said, yes, that's true. Being a believer doesn't give you an exemption card from life. We all experience the issues that you mention whether we believe in God or not. He said, all right then, let me ask you a second question. Isn't life difficult whether you believe in Jesus or not? I mean, don't Christians struggle with things like bankruptcy and illness? Uh, don't we all try to raise our children the best we can? And if they fail, don't, don't we all suffer terribly? And Becky said, yes, life is difficult. In fact, I think there uh, may be even more challenges for a serious follower of Jesus. But yes, life is very difficult whether you believe in Jesus or not. And he said, all right, let me ask you a third question. Don't Christians fail? Now, I grant you that in some areas you may do better than the rest of us do, but I've met some born-again Christians who were racist, who were proud and self-righteous, and don't say, oh, well, well, they're not real Christians. And she said, oh, I'm not going to say that, yes, but you're right. Yes, we fail as you fail. He said, well, there you have it. If life is the same, if, if life is difficult, and if you fail like we fail, then Jesus doesn't really make a difference. Your answers proved it. I mean, maybe Jesus is like a hot water bottle that gets you through the night. You have your fix, I have mine. But Jesus doesn't intrinsically make a difference. And then Becky writes, while I don't agree with the professor's conclusion, he does hit the nail on the head when he asks if Jesus truly makes a difference in our lives. Now, I want you to think about that. How would you answer that professor's objections, his questions? What difference does Jesus really make? Now, if you are new to all of this, maybe that's one of the questions that you have. If you've been a Christian for a while, you could say, well, just read the Bible. I mean, Jesus is the difference between heaven and hell. He's the difference between where you spend eternity. And, and you would be absolutely right. I mean, from a Christian perspective, there's nothing more important than where you're going to spend eternity. But to an atheist like this professor, that doesn't mean much. I mean, to him, when you die, that's it. It's over. And he, he doesn't believe in God or heaven or hell. And so all that is just meaningless to him. You see, what the professor wants to know is what difference does Jesus make in this life? That's the question. 
So how would you answer that question? What difference does Jesus make in this life, in the here and now? And that's the question that I want to answer this morning, and I think John 16 gives us an answer to that question. Now, if you're just joining us, we've been moving through uh, a study in the Gospel of John, and we're in a section of Scripture that's commonly referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. It's a section of Scripture, John 13, 14, 15, 16, where we have Jesus' final instructions to his disciples. This is happening on the night before he is arrested and tried, and, and, and on Friday he will be crucified. So obviously what he says here is significant. I mean, if you knew you were gonna die in a few short hours, you would tell the people that you are with what you consider to be of vital importance. And what Jesus wants these men to know is that after he is gone, they will be able to continue to follow him and learn from him because he is going to send his very own spirit to live inside of them. And he's been trying to tell them that he's leaving and that when he leaves, as strange as this may sound, he's saying that they will be able to know God personally in a way that wasn't possible when he was with them. And that's what he's been trying to communicate in all kinds of different ways. But what amazes me is that much of what Jesus tells these men on this night, they did not understand. Now, we understand because we know the rest of the story, but that night, sitting where those disciples were sitting, they're in a fog. Again, it makes more sense to us because we know how the story turns out. We know that he's telling them that he's gonna die, be raised from the dead, return to his Father in heaven, and he will send the Spirit to live inside of them. We know that, but to those 11 men, they're in a fog. He hasn't said it in plain language on this night. He said it before, but it just went right in over their head. So they're struggling to understand. Now look at verse 16. What he says next doesn't help very much either. Verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. (laughs) So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. See it, these guys are thoroughly confused. It's like Jesus is is speaking in riddles. Now you see me, now you don't, but you will. You know, what's that all about? Well, yeah, yeah, he's talking about his death and resurrection. Jesus is saying that in a few short hours, he is going to be dead and buried and his disciples will see him no longer. He is saying, but in a few short days, three days, he will rise from the dead and they will see him again on Sunday evening. That's what, that's what he means, but from the way he says it here, there's no way they could really understand. Now look at verse 19. Jesus knows they're confused and uh, he knows they don't understand, so he explains it to them. But you tell me if this explanation makes any sense. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you'll see me and in a little while you won't see me, uh, you won't see me and in a little while you will see me. He says, okay, so here, let me explain it to you guys. Here's, 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 here's what it's like. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will reap and, weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. 
But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Okay, like what? Like, well, now it's true that whole thing about childbirth. I mean, I understand it because I went through it myself. Well, not the childbirth, I was there as a spectator, you understand. I mean, Karen and I went through all those natural childbirth classes before we had a first child. I'm guessing that many of you did as well, but to me, and I think to many men, natural childbirth is a joke. I mean, natural childbirth is when you as the man are coaching the childbirth. But really, coaching childbirth is like coaching an avalanche, right? I mean, it really doesn't need your help. It's gonna happen without you, with you or without you. Never needed a man around. No natural childbirth to most men is like sitting down the hall reading old issues of Sports Illustrated. That's natural, but to get us in the room, they call it natural childbirth. And so we bought into this whole thing. We took the classes, and, and in those classes, Karen learned to breathe. <laughs> you know, that you remember that. And she had to pick a focal point, a mystical focal point, by which if she focused on it, it would cause all the pain of the contractions to go away. Yeah, right, right. We had a clipboard and a stopwatch to keep time. We even had a peanut butter sandwich in the fridge. So if we were called out in the middle of the night and the labor went long, then I would have something to munch on to keep up my coaching energy. <laughs> well, the time finally came and I found my wife to be highly uncooperative. <laughs> I mean, she threw the focal point out the window. She wasn't interested in the stopwatch. She didn't care how long the contractions were. She just wanted them to stop. And when I pulled out the sandwich, you know, for extra coaching energy, she said the smell made her sick. And I had to put a baggie over my head and eat like the astronauts do. And she pushed for like four hours, red-faced veins popping out of her forehead and her, out of her neck. The epidural was not effective. And I tell you, men think they're tough. No, 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 men are not tough. Men think they're tough because they can eat a whole steak. I mean, from my perspective, there's nothing more painful than childbirth. I mean, someone has said, and I agree with this, it's like pulling a bowling ball through one of your nostrils. You know, so, I mean, so, so, so she pushes through the pain, and Chad was born, and as Jesus says, when he was born, there was great joy. And uh, especially for me, I mean, I tell you, early that next morning, I went down to the chapel at Baylor Hospital in Dallas, and I went down to the front of that chapel, and I knelt down, and there was a guy on my left, and he was praying, oh, Lord, thank you so much for my baby girl. And there was a guy on my right, and he was saying, oh, Lord, thank you so much for my baby boy. And I was in the middle, and I prayed the prayer the ancient rabbis prayed, oh, God, thank you that I'm a man and not a woman. <laughs> I rejoiced that I would never have to go through something like that. So, yeah, 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 we understand the illustration. Women in labor are in pain. There's no joy during the process of giving birth. But when the child is born, great joy, and she remembers her pain no more. So the, yes, the whole parable of childbirth makes the point about sorrow turning to joy, but it still didn't clear things up for these guys. Verse 22, so also you will have sorrow, but I will see you again, Jesus says, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will be able to take that joy from you. So he does say, I will see you again, 
But what does that mean? I mean, when will he see them again? Like when they, when they die and go to heaven, they will see Jesus? Or when he comes back at his second coming? Or well, they don't even understand that yet. I mean, when are they gonna see him? How long is a little while? It, it, none of it, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, how could their sorrow be turned to joy? How could Jesus leaving them make them happy? He's going away and coming back. What is that all about? I mean, these guys are hurt and confused. They're living with unanswered questions. What they hoped was gonna happen with Jesus the Messiah, now they realize it's not gonna happen, but worst of all, they have no idea what's going on or what's gonna happen next. Now let me ask you, how do you handle the fog in your life? Like how do you deal with not knowing how something is gonna turn out? How do you handle life when life doesn't make sense? When, when you can't see around the next corner? Uh, how are you doing with the questions that you have that God hasn't answered? I don't know. Uh, as far as I can tell, most of us hate uncertainty, like not knowing how that job interview is going to turn out or not knowing if you're going to get into the college you want or waiting to find out the grade on that final exam or waiting to, for the results of the CAT scan or wondering if you'll ever get married or maybe you know the right thing to do, but you wanna guarantee that if you do the right thing, then everything will turn out right, but there's no guarantees. Or you thought God was leading in a certain way and you started walking down that path and you thought you knew where God was taking you, and then right in the middle of it, you realize you're not gonna get to where you thought you were gonna get. I mean, that's really hard, isn't it? I mean, I mean we, we hate not knowing exactly what's going on and what's gonna happen next. I mean, we would much rather know that A is safe and B is dangerous and C is going to happen and D is not or E is wise, a wise precaution and F is a foolish action. We want certainty. We want to know how things are going to turn out. We want, to, we want our questions answered because having answered questions makes us feel safe. It makes us feel secure. makes us feel like we're in control. Uncertainty creates fear and worry and frustration and anxiety. It's like riding a, a, an emotional roller coaster up and down because what we don't understand tends to upset us and uncertainty about the future robs us of joy. So up to this point, the more Jesus explained things, the more confused they got. And I step back from that and I say, why? Like, why is Jesus being purposely vague? Why is he being intentionally obscure? Why, why keep them in the dark? I mean, why not just tell them, look, in about an hour, I'm gonna be arrested, I'm gonna be tried, I'm, I, I'm gonna be crucified, I'll be nailed to a cross, I'm gonna die, I'll be buried, and three days later I will rise from the dead, and then I'm gonna return to the Father and sit at his right hand, and then I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit that I've been talking about all evening with you guys, and you guys are gonna begin a new adventure with me, the likes of which you can't imagine. Why not just tell them straight out, plain like that? I, I'm not sure I have a good answer to that. I do know that John, the author of this book, tells us that his purpose in writing these things down for us is so that we'll believe in Jesus, so that we'll have a more solid, confident faith in Jesus, chapter 20, verse 31. And I do know that God 
often allows confusion and uncertainty to linger in our lives. I mean, from what I've learned about God over the years, from what I read in the Bible and what I've experienced in life, it seems clear to me that for whatever God's good purpose, God does not always make things clear to the people he loves. He does not always make things clear to the people he loves. I do know that God's ways are higher than our ways and his purposes are higher than our purposes, so we better get comfortable with his higher ways and purposes. I was talking to somebody a while back and, and, and he said, you know, the older that I get, the less certain I am of, of, of what God is leading me to do. And I, I agreed with that. I mean, the longer you walk with God, it seems that there's more times when God lets the fog set in and you're not quite sure what the future will hold. Now, why is that? Well, I told you I wasn't sure, but I do think it has something to do with the nature of faith. Again, John's purpose in writing all this is to grow our faith. And here in John chapter 16, clearly Jesus is trying to grow the disciples' faith in the midst of sorrow and confusion, and he seems more concerned that they trust him than he is in making everything clear to them. Later, one of Jesus' followers will write, will write, we walk by faith and not by sight. I mean, if we could see around every corner, if, if we could be sure of every outcome, if we could know with certainty how everything is gonna turn out, if every question we have is answered, then there would be no need to trust God. And what Jesus wants from these men and what he wants from us is for us to take him at his word and follow him into uncertainty. Because sometimes God doesn't make things clear because he wants us to trust that he is good and wise and powerful, even if we can't see his goodness or his wisdom or his power at work when we think we should be able to see it. You see, in uncertain times, Jesus promises us, though, that if we trust him, our sorrow will turn to joy and our confusion will turn to confidence. Now, just hold that thought. We're going to come back to it, but let's move on because for the first time in four chapters, in verses 23 and 24, Jesus begins to clear the fog just a bit. Not much, but just a bit. Verse 23, in that day... Okay, what day are we talking about? In the day you see me again, obviously. In the day that I'm raised from the dead. In the day that I return to the Father and send the Holy Spirit to you. Again, we understand what he's saying. Not, them not so much. But he makes this promise to them. They will understand in a future short time away day. He says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Why? Because when they see Jesus alive from the dead, they're going to understand. It'll all begin to make sense. Now, you know, a lot of people, it kind of tickles me, a lot of people say, well, when I get to heaven, I got a lot of questions for God. Like, like I'm going to put God on trial when I get to heaven because he, I've got lots of questions he didn't answer. Like, he better have some good answers. You know, I like what C.S. Lewis said about that. He said, the first words out of our mouths when we step into the new kingdom of God will be, of course, of course. 
In other words, we won't have questions because we will see as we have never seen before. Our faith will become sight for the first time. And Jesus says here, a day is coming when you see me alive from the dead, you won't have these questions anymore. It'll all begin to make sense and you will have your own, of course, moment. Middle of verse 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. So first thing he says is seeing Jesus alive from the dead, you'll have joy. Now he's talking about something else. Now when we read verse 24, we immediately think he's talking about having our prayers answered. And Jesus has already talked a lot about prayer in this upper room discourse. But here he's talking about something much bigger than answered prayer. He tells us in verse 24 that up until that time, the disciples had not asked God the Father for anything. Why not? Two reasons. They didn't have to. I mean, they could ask Jesus, and they knew that whatever they needed, Jesus would provide provide because of his close relationship with the Father. But now, Jesus is emphasizing that because of something he's about to do, that they will have a close personal relationship with the Father, and that would fill them with great joy. How so? Why is that? Number two, these guys are Jews. These guys are Jews. And this statement by Jesus would, it have, been, would have been an amazing statement to them because as Jews, no common person could approach God. You had to have a mediator to go to God. And that's why under the old covenant, there were priests who would come before God on your behalf. And there were all kinds of rules and rituals and restrictions placed on the priest coming before God, like they could only come to, before God in the temple. It could only be once a year. Only one person could go into the Holy of Holies. No, no ordinary common person could, could approach God. No common person had direct access to God. You had to have a mediator. And what Jesus is saying here is, in that day, a new day is coming, and everything you know about God and people is going to change, and you will be able to come to God and ask God directly for things. That's what he's saying. He's saying they will be able to personally, directly ask the Father for the things they need, and he will grant their request as they are in line with Jesus' will for their life. They won't need anyone to approach God for them. They won't even need Jesus to go before the Father for them. They can come to God themselves in Jesus' name. So, Because of who Jesus is and what Jesus is about to do for them, they can ask and receive, they can approach and be welcomed, and that will mean joy, a joy that nobody can ever take from them. Now, okay, so here's my two-part summary of this passage, all right? First of all, Jesus is saying, when you see me alive from the dead, it'll all make sense and you'll have joy. The second thing Jesus is saying is when you see what I've done for you, opening the way for you to go directly to the Father, you will have a joy that no one can take from you. Or to say it a little bit differently, and maybe a little more simply, seeing Jesus for who he is, who who he really is, brings joy. And seeing all that Jesus has done for you brings joy. That's what Jesus is teaching these guys, but 
They don't understand it now, but when they see Jesus alive from the dead, it'll all begin to make sense. All right, so draw a line. Here's the big idea. Here's the big idea. The difference that Jesus makes in the here and now is that he turns sorrow into joy. He says, when you see me, you'll have joy. He turns sorrow into joy. Now, I want to unpack that for you, so let's look at four things about joy, that Jesus, this joy that Jesus gives us, and let's start by defining our terms. First of all, and I got this from Tim Keller, first of all, the word gospel means joy news. Now, I know you've heard all your life it means good news, and it means good news, but it's not good like, oh, how are you feeling today? Good, pretty good. It's not that, it's not that. The gospel is great good news. The gospel is joy news. And the gospel is this. It's actually outlined down in verse 28 that Jim will unpack next week. The gospel is the joy giving good news that Jesus has come from the Father. He's come into the world. He became one of us. And through this crazy upside down strategy of dying and suffering and apparent defeat, Jesus rose from the dead, ascended back to heaven, and he's turned the tables on evil. And now he's leading a revolt, and eventually he's going to eradicate all evil and suffering in the world. That's the gospel story. When you actually believe it, when you stake your life on it, when you take hold of it and it takes hold of you, the gospel fills your heart with joy, the likes of which nothing in this world can compete a joy that transcends the pain and suffering you experience in this broken, twisted, rebellious world. Now let's talk about that. Number two, in the world, joy and sorrow cannot overlap. They are mutually exclusive. It's, they're like oil and water, they don't mix. Now. If you don't know God, and you know this is true, if you don't know God, if you have sorrow, but you want joy, then what do you do? Well, you have to eliminate the pain, right? And there's three, at least three ways that we try to eliminate pain. I mean, the first way is we try to forget the pain. And you can do that through chemicals, through narcotics, through alcohol. You can do it by chasing after all kinds of pleasure-seeking things. The first way we try to eliminate pain is just to try to forget it in order to have joy. The second thing is you can try to avoid the pain. And usually that means you have to break commitments. You just leave. You tell yourself, I don't deserve this. I don't have to put up with this. And so what you do is you walk away. You walk away from a relationship. You walk away from a marriage. You walk away from a job. You walk away from a church. And you do whatever you have to do to avoid the pain in order to get the joy. A third way that we try to eliminate pain in our lives is, uh, it's the most psychologically unhealthy, by the way, you try to deny the pain, hoping to get joy. In other words, you tell yourself, oh, that doesn't bother me. No, 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 everything's fine, just fine, not, not a problem, just fine. Oh, really, it's it really, really, it's all right. Now, so, so, you see it, we try to forget the pain, avoid the pain, deny the pain. But in each case, what you're trying to do is to turn your brain off, right? You're trying to numb it or medicate it or trying to divorce yourself from reality. You're trying to block it. You can tell yourself all kinds of things to forget, avoid, deny the pain, 
but all of them are just ways of turning your mind off to the reality of pain. In fact, you have to do these things because in this world, joy and sorrow are mutually exclusive. But for a follower of Jesus, there is a sense in which the new birth makes our hearts bigger. Now, I say this in just about every funeral because it is absolutely the truth. But I'll say something like this. For the Christian, God has made our hearts big enough and strong enough that sorrow and joy and grief and hope and pain and peace can coexist in our heart without our hearts blowing apart. God has given the Christian, he's given us a heart that is strong enough to hold two opposing emotions, sorrow and joy, we can hold them in the same heart and that heart not blow apart. Now, I'm gonna ask you a question. How many of you have experienced the truth of that statement? Raise your hand and keep them up. And if you're in auditorium too, I want you to raise your hand because I want you to see how many other people say this. This is the reality. This right here is the difference that Jesus makes, right? Yes, God has made our reborn hearts big enough to hold these two opposing emotions, sorrow and joy, at the same time so that our sorrows are ultimately overshadowed by a joy and a peace that passes all understanding. That's the reason why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that we are sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Isn't that good? Man. And a non-Christian hears that and says, well, I don't get it. I, I, I don't get it. Oh, oh. Of course not. What makes Christian joy joy is not the absence of sorrow or pain, but rather you have something that transcends the pain and empowers you to not be completely overcome by the sorrow. Number three, the world's joy rests on circumstances, but the Christian's joy does not. The world's joy is pretty simple. If you have good circumstances, you're happy. If you have bad circumstances, you're not happy, right? I mean, now, for a Christian, if we have bad circumstances, we're sad. We feel the sorrow. But at the same time, a Christian's joy is not based on circumstances, or it shouldn't be. Our joy is based on something much higher, infinitely higher. Our highest joy is based on the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. In this world, what gives you joy is accumulating and owning things that you consider worthwhile and valuable. It's, it's, joy comes from knowing that you're doing something that matters. Joy comes from knowing that you are loved. In Christ, yes, all of those things matter to us as well, but our joy is based on something much bigger than those things. When your circumstances are bad, when you've lost someone you love, when you don't feel like what you're doing really matters, when you lose something that has made you feel secure and now you don't have it, are you sad? Yes. Do you feel insecure? Yes, of course. But you also know you can't ever lose God's love. You also know you can't lose God's purpose for your life. You also know you can't lose God's provision for your life. And if you have that, when you have that, 
You have a joy that transcends every loss, every sorrow, every uncertainty. And that's, and, and, and that's the reason why Jesus says in verse 22, when you see me alive from the dead, your heart will rejoice. When you see me, you'll have joy. And no one can take that joy from you. If your joy is based on circumstances, anyone and anything can take it from you. But if your joy is based in Christ, no one, nothing can take that from you. So here's my final point. We lose our joy when we stop thinking gospel. We lose our joy when we stop thinking gospel. I'm saying you, me, we lose our joy when we quit thinking. Or just let me say it this way. We, the way that we see Jesus today is by thinking gospel. Now remember I said earlier um, that the ways that we try to eliminate uh, pain, we try to forget the pain, avoid the pain, deny the pain. But in each case, what did I say? In each case, what you're trying to do is to turn your mind off. For a Christian, the problem is not that we turn our mind off. Hopefully, we're not trying to do that. Our problem is we're not thinking enough. And, 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 that's, and Christians tell themselves, yes, what's going on is really bad. This is really bad. This is really distressing. But I have something more. And that something more is Jesus, our risen Lord, our Lord who ascended back to the right hand of the Father in heaven, who right now is in control of everything from galaxies to governments. And because of Jesus, we know that God loves us with an everlasting love, a love that never fails, a love that can carry us through pain and sorrow and loss and any and every negative circumstance in this world. You see, circumstantial joy demands that you not think too hard. But Christian joy transcends your circumstances when you think hard on the gospel. I hear you. I mean, some of you are saying, well, what's wrong with me then? I mean, I, mean, I believe all these things. What's wrong with me? I mean, I don't feel like I have any more joy than anybody else. I'm so overwhelmed by all the bad stuff in my life. I get that. I really do. And I'll be honest with you. For the last couple of weeks, I lost my joy. All kinds of things happened that left me mentally and emotionally exhausted, left me flat, left me not being able to sleep well at night. And I don't do good when I don't sleep well. I mean, I can go to sleep okay, but after a couple hours, I wake up and I can't turn my mind off. I mean, it's like inside my head, I got three TVs going, all on different channels. And then there are mental managers in there holding remotes and they're switching channels just like, I mean, and all it is is just constant. I got songs going through my head. I got, I'm rehearsing conversations with, I mean, I got all kinds of stuff going on. How many of you know, how many of you know what I mean? Yeah, okay. I, I, I didn't want to feel alone. That would just add to the problem. So, Now, my problem is, and I think this could be your problem as well, our problem is we take the gospel for granted. We take Jesus for granted. We, have what we, we take what we have in Jesus for granted. We, we don't think gospel. I mean, we're, most of us aren't trying to numb the pain, uh, uh, you know, uh, to forget it, to deny it. To avoid it. Most of us are too focused on thinking about seeing what we've lost, 
seeing what we can't control, seeing what's been done wrong to us, and we wonder why we have no joy. Jesus says, if you see me above, beneath, before, and behind all the things going on in your life, your heart will rejoice. If you see me above, beneath, behind, and before all the things in your life, if you see yourself totally encased in me, you in me, me in you, if you see it, then you have joy. Now, yes, of course you, you will feel sadness, you will feel sorrow, loneliness, pain, hurt, anger, anxiety, you feel those things just like everybody else, but unlike everyone else, When you see Jesus and what you have in Jesus as more important, more valuable, more beautiful than what you hope to gain if your circumstances change for the better, you have a joy that transcends life itself. That is the difference that Jesus makes, and that's what I would try to explain to the professor. Yes, Christians and non-Christians, for both of us, life is pretty much the same for all of us. Life is difficult for all of us. And Christians sometimes fail like unbelievers fail. But for us, the difference that Jesus makes in the here and now is he turns sorrow into joy. A joy that no one and no thing can take from us. Now, to the professor, that answer might seem like a hot water bottle fix. But to us, well, let me show you. Back in 2006, a story gripped the hearts of many people here in the Greenville area. A young 16-year-old boy, Thomas Epting, had been battling cancer for a long time. He had, he had beaten back two bouts of, with leukemia, And then he developed multiple brain tumors. Now, Tom was 16, but he had an uncommon faith in Jesus. His deep relationship with Jesus was the most important thing to him, as was his desire that God would be glorified during his battles with cancer. Now, sadly, he lost the battle with those tumors. And he died uh, November the 24th, 2006. Now, I'm not sure how I came into possession of the story that I'm about to read you. I look back in my old notebook that we preached, that I preached uh, when I preached on the Upper Room Discourse, and behind a message in John 16 was this piece of paper filled up, uh, um, folded up. I didn't use it in that sermon, but I had stuck it in that notebook, and I think... God meant for me to find it and read it to to you today. His mother, Amy, tells a story about a conversation she had with Thomas shortly before he passed away. She wrote, One morning on the way to the doctor for chemo, I was talking to Thomas about how I was wrestling with the specifics of giving thanks to God for everything and praising him for everything in our lives. Really, my question was whether I had to actually be in a place of thanking God for the brain tumors, or was I just supposed to be able to thank God for his provisions in and through the tumors? Things like 
answered prayers and unexpected blessings and his will in Thomas' life, those kind of things. Was it that I just needed to thank God for what he was doing in Thomas' life with the tumors or was my heart supposed to be at a place of actually being thankful for the tumors? She said, I I was wrestling with all this because I wanted everything that I was doing to be right so that my prayers for Thomas would be effective. I told Thomas that I was struggling with all this because it would be so hard for me to honestly be thankful and praise God for the actual things that was causing so much pain and suffering to my child. And after a lot of discussion with Thomas, he looked at me and he said, Mom, you think too much. You're wasting your time on rabbit trails. The bottom line is this, God sent his son to die for me. If God never did anything else for me ever, if he never answered another prayer of mine, if he doesn't heal me, if I have brain tumors and I suffer, no matter what happens to me ever, if he never ever did another thing for me again other than sending Jesus for me, mom, that's enough for me to praise him continually daily as long as I live. So mom, just focus on that. Praise him for sending Jesus and quit worrying about the tumors and being thankful for them or not. All we need to do is continually praise him to praise God for sending Jesus because mom, we can find happiness from knowing that there's a God who loves us and, never, and will never forsake us and knowing that he will come back for us. That is the difference that Jesus makes. He has made our hearts big enough to hold sorrow and joy at the same time without blowing apart. And he turns all of our sorrows into joy. I don't think, I don't think the professor would be able to understand it because here's the deal. You have to know Jesus to understand it. You gotta know him to experience it. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, then listen, I'm I'm happy to talk with you. Any of our pastors are happy to talk with you because we would love to introduce you to this one who turns every sorrow into joy. See, Thomas dared to live his life as if all the things he believed about Jesus were true. What a novel idea. He saw Jesus and what Jesus had done for him as more important and more valuable and more beautiful than his hoped for healing. So let me ask you, have you allowed the things that you've lost, the things you can't control, the things someone has said that you don't like, the wrongs done to you, have you let those things rob you of your joy? I tell you, this passage in Thomas' story really convicted me this past week because I realized that if there's no joy in my life, the reason is simple. I'm not seeing Jesus above, beneath, behind, before all the things in my life that are distressing me. I'm not seeing that what I have in Jesus is more important, more valuable, more beautiful than what I hope to gain if my circumstances change for the better. How about you? I don't know what you're going through. 
But whatever you're going through, are you seeing what Jesus has done for you and the promises he's made to you? Do you see Jesus as more important, more valuable, more beautiful than what you hope to gain if your circumstances change for the better? You know, we're reading through the New Testament book of James in our community Bible reading journal right now, and I was thinking about James, and I thought, you know, if James were, James is the Lord's half-brother, if he were to come here and stand and speak to you this morning, I was thinking, I wonder what James would say to us on the tail end of this message. I think he would say this, brothers and sisters, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance finish its work that you might be perfect and complete, mature, not lacking in anything. And then I think he would say this. Now, you know James can be pretty blunt. So I think James would say, if you have no joy, your faith is useless to you. It's not working for you. You might have the faith to believe that Jesus will take you to heaven when you die, but if you have no joy, your faith is not active enough to help you through the difficulties that you're going through. I told you he could be blunt. So how do you activate your faith? You think gospel. You preach the gospel to yourself. You remind yourself of what you have in Jesus. You say with Thomas, if Jesus allows me to live with a distressing, uncertain future, if Jesus never answered another prayer for me, if Jesus never makes anything better for me, then his love is enough for me. His promise to never leave me or forsake me is enough for me. His death on the cross is enough for me. And when Jesus is enough, even in the sadness and the sorrow and the loneliness and all the distressing things, you'll have a joy that transcends all that and carries you through. That's the difference that Jesus makes. I hope you know him, and I hope you allow the Holy Spirit to work the truth of these words into your life. Amen. Amen. Father God, thank you so much for this word. You chose to write this story down the way John wrote it down. You inspired it so that we would have greater faith in you when we face confusion and uncertainty so that we would learn what it means to be able to have joy in the midst of the most sorrowful disconcerting, disheartening circumstances. Holy Spirit, work the truth of this into our life so we can live it. Father, Fellowship Greenville, this church, these people, me, all of us, we, if we don't have this joy, we have no light. So work in our hearts and lives as we move through difficult days and troubling times and we have to deal with stuff and we deal with the emotions that come, make it so 
that nothing, no one can eclipse the joy that Jesus died to make possible for us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.